Welcome all to the fourth iteration of the Oxford Political Thought Seminar. And we are delighted to welcome today Nasreen Badawi from the American University in Cairo and Murad Idris from the University of Michigan, who will both be addressing the issue of violence in, in different times and places. Uh, I will invite Osama Al-Azmi, my co-convener, to introduce them properly. Uh, but before doing so, I just want to uh, just lay down some of the regulations here, which is that Nasreen will begin and speak for 20 minutes and then be followed by Murad for another 20 minutes, after which we shall have Q&A. And if you should have any questions, please put them either in the Q&A box anonymously or under your own name or in the chat box. And if you're unable absolutely to do that, you can raise your hand and I can, uh, Osama can call upon you. And you can start asking your questions during the talk so as not to wait until they finish. So with that, I'll hand over to you, Osama. Thank you very much, Faisal, and uh, welcome to both Nasreen and, and Murad. Uh, it's really wonderful to have you here from across the Atlantic or the Mediterranean, as the case may be. And I'm just going to introduce Nasreen, uh, just give a little bit of biographical background, and then please feel free to sort of launch into your discussion. So Nasreen uh, Badawi is a, an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the American University in Cairo. She is an associate professor of public and international law, and she received her PhD from the School of Oriental and African Studies. Um, she holds an LLM uh, in international comparative law and a licence de en droit and a BA in political science. So Badawi has experienced working in the United Nations uh, with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees on refugee law and has offered consultancy uh, and uh, work to several organizations on humanitarian and Islamic law. Your relatively recently published book in 2019 is entitled Islamic Jurisprudence on the Regulation of Armed Conflict with Brill. And we look forward to your uh, lecture on uh, sort of Islamic conceptions of violence um, in, in the modern period. So without further ado, please, Nasreen, go ahead. Thank you, Osema. It's a pleasure to be with you here today, and I'm looking forward to the discussion we're going to have today. I'm just going to give a brief introduction of what I intend to talk about today. The focus of my talk today is how different Muslim actors have attempted to reformulate and interpret Islamic regulations on armed conflict and the rules of war in Islamic jurisprudence in the modern context. And I'm going to look at three main uh, actors. The first actor that I'm going to look at is Muslim institutions with a focus on Al-Azhar and its approach to Islamic laws of war. And then I'm going to look at two examples of mainstream scholars who are independent scholars, Wahb al-Zuhayli, the Syrian scholar, and um, Yusuf al-Qaradawi just to give a sense of mainstream approaches to Islamic law, uh, to Islamic laws of war. And then I'm going to shift to a discussion of militant groups and their interpretations of Islamic laws of war with a focus on Al-Qaeda and uh, the Islamic State. To start out this discussion, I think that one, there's an important framing question, premise that needs to be taken, which is understanding the dilemma that many of Muslim states in the Muslim world were faced with, which is the post-colonial moment and the, and the move towards independence. Understanding how Muslim institutions and how Muslim scholars interpreted Islamic law cannot be separated from that moment with the rise in pressure for legal reform and the assertion on the primacy 
and the supremacy of European inspired laws, including international law, we see a shift towards an attempt an, towards an assertion of Islamic law's congruency with international humanitarian law. So in the 50s and the 60s, we see a rise in scholarship that addresses the question of Islamic laws of war, whether within the Muslim world or from Muslim scholars who are in Western academia, such as Hamidullah, Majid Khadouri, and from within the Muslim world itself. Uh, I have looked extensively at Al-Azhar's conferences, uh, the Al-Majma al islamiyya which is a scholarly community under, uh, under the auspices of Al-Azhar, and it has conducted annual conferences to address issues of Islamic law. And we see a focus on Islamic laws of war uh, and scholarship on understanding Islamic laws of war in that era. And my argument is that that focus is heavily influenced by an attempt to emulate the principles of uh, international law with regards to combatancy. For example, a scholar uh, like Muhammad Abu Zahra, uh, who has dedicated extensive focus to Islamic laws of war, offers an interpretation of Islamic law that largely aligns with our understanding of Islamic law. In order to do that, my argument is that much of significant features of Islamic law are suppressed in order to arrive at that congruency. One important feature that is suppressed is the question of diversity. And that is, uh, is closely connected to an attempt to offer an authoritative singular interpretation of Islamic law, but also closely connected to the idea of singular law and the idea of the sovereign authority establishing one interpretation of law. So we see diversity suppressed and issues that have been contested and have been heavily negotiated and uh, elaborated upon by jurists leading to different interpretations are largely treated as a singular interpretation. For that, I'll use the example of combatancy or the example of who may be targeted under the Islamic legal tradition. Of course, the notion of combatancy in and of itself is a modern notion that is heavily associated with the rise of full-fledged armies the, under the auspices of um, a sovereign uh, state. So it cannot be separated from that. But in order to offer an interpretation that those who do not participate in fighting may not be targeted, um, we see a selective reliance on the jurisprudence and suppression of the diverse use of jurisprudence of ju different jurists who offer varying interpretations. For example, if we look at the classic uh, tradition, we see uh, varying views. So with, on the one hand, you have uh, Hanafi views, uh, such as Al-Shaybani, for example, who lists certain uh, categories who may not be targeted because they're unable to participate in fighting. And that list is rather expansive, expansive to include the categories that are common to those who are familiar with Islamic laws of war, such as women, children, um, older men, the blind, the crippled, um, hired laborers, and so on and so forth. So an explicit list. And we move away from that and we see, for example, to the other end of the spectrum, we see scholars like Al-Shafi'i and Ibn Hazm who assert that 
men who have reached the age of puberty may be targeted. So a very different interpretation. And within those different interpretations, there is an extensive examination of the sources, extensive examination of prophetic uh, traditions and practices to arrive at that interpretation. But all of that is suppressed in the modern interpretation in order to arrive at that singular interpretation, the argument that those who do not participate in fighting uh, may not be targeted. Another feature that is closely connected to the question of uh, suppression of diversity is selectivity. And selectivity that is often incoherent. So unlike, for example, in earlier approaches to Islamic law, where we see jurists following a particular school of thought and they espouse that jurisprudential schools positions, we see an eclectic choice that is largely reminiscent of uh, the process of Talfiq, but with no coherence. So a Shafi might be relied on in a particular position to advance a certain view, and his views might be disregarded if they are if they are not seen as befitting of the argument that the author is making. And that approach and that methodology of interpreting Islamic laws of war, I argue, continues to live on until the present day. So another significant stage that we see Islamic jurists confronted with is the moment of 9-11 and the post-9-11 and, post and, and the rise in arguments about Islamic militancy uh, and the surge in arguments about uh, how we interpret Islamic law's treatment of 9-11 leads to, again, a renewed interest in that. And we see very similar approaches with the addition of the new significant approach which is the reliant on older regimes of jurisprudence that may have offered, may have been developed for a different set of acts to, and trying to apply them to the crime of terrorism. And I use the example of Haraba, which is a regime that in the classic jurisprudence is often seen as reserved for highway robbery and banditry, explicitly criminal activity that deals with a crime that uh, receives the highest, I mean, perhaps the harshest punishment in Islamic law, and taking that and extrapolating it to the crime of terrorism. And that becomes a very common feature of the approach of uh, mainstream jurisprudence, and particularly those who are affiliated with the state, in order to um, deal with the crime of terrorism. In parallel to that, we see suppression, complete suppression or silence on the regime of Bakhi, which has normally been the regime that deals with political violence under classical Islamic jurisprudence. The reason Baghi is suppressed is not surprising because the, the regime of Baghi is to some extent rather agnostic to whether or not you have the right to, to rebel and focuses more extensively on regulating the act of rebellion and provides extensive protections for the different warring parties, including extensive protections for the rebelling group. Um, when, I mean, so you have scholars who argue that that rebelling groups, if, if they flee the battle, they may not be pursued, their, um, their wounded may not be dispatched, and other arguments that are largely restrictive, including extensive restrictions on the confiscation of uh, the Bourges property. That is not necessarily a regime that lends itself to utilization by a sovereign state in our understanding of the modern sovereign state. Hence, it's not surprising that it is disregarded and that we see leaning towards a much more permissive regime in terms of punishment and a regime that is uh, that provides a harsher judgment of the act of violence itself, which is the regime of Herob.
To a great extent, that is the general discourse that we see until the rise of ISIS. But the rise of ISIS, and I'm going to come back to that when I talk about militant groups, is a perplexing moment for mainstream scholars because ISIS collapses all categories. Just as the category of Haraba and Baghi is collapsed by mainstream jurists, ISIS even goes a step uh, further by expanding apostasy ex extensively beyond any other expansion that we see by other militant uh, groups uh, in order to resort to the regime of apostasy to, uh, to justify their practices with the different warring parties, including civilians living under uh, the control of the Muslim regimes who are deemed apostate by the Islamic State. However, the response by official mainstream institutions does not necessarily live up to the premise of fighting against that challenge. In some areas, they're successful. In other areas, they seem to falter. So when it comes to tech fear, for example, we see a very solid assertion on um, the, the classic Ash'ari doctrine of limiting the purview of takfir and limiting the resort uh, to takfir. And we see a basis there. But when it comes to other areas that ISIS relies or other claims that ISIS makes, we see a much weaker resort to the jurisprudence to uh, push back against ISIS. And I use here the example of Hakimeya, the assertion on uh, the need to uphold Islamic law in order for a regime to govern Muslim societies and the assertion of that as a benchmark to assess Islamicity of the regime. With that, we see punchlines. We see general uh, statements that do not necessarily offer a serious and consorted effort to deal with questions of democracy and how and how we understand democracy, questions of positive law and how the, and what the space for positive law is within a legitimate Muslim regime in the modern context. And part of my argument is that this is hardly surprising considering the very difficult terrain that official Muslim institutions are trying to tread. Because on the one hand, they need to assert their legitimacy, they need to maintain their legitimacy. But on the other hand, their relationships with the different regimes and their relationships with sovereign states who rely on positive law extensively are strenuous, are difficult to, to manage. That makes it very difficult for them to actually address uh, that issue. But that doesn't go without attempts to make gains. So one of the main lines that we see asserted by official Muslim institutions is the line of the assertion of authority. So what extensively we find, for, uh, I mean, progressive assertions of authority and progressive assertions that Muslims cannot offer a direct interpretation of Islamic law on their own. They need to go to a qualified scholar in order to do that. As a matter of fact, I think in a personal interview with one prominent Muslim jurist in the past, he, he made the claim that none other than Muslim jurists should read the fiqh texts and attempt to interpret them on their own, but they should actually go to the scholars to offer that interpretation. To, to a great extent, if we look at the trajectory, we see that with independent mainstream scholars, there's more inclination 
to deal uh, with and problematize those uh, issues. So with Al-Qaradawi, for example, we see a more consorted effort to deal with the question of uh, takfir, with the question of the place of uh, uh, Muslim regimes and subjects of Muslim regimes in the Muslim world to arrive at a conclusion very similar to Al-Azhar, but with um, uh, perhaps a more rigorous interpretation. But again, we also see the line of assertion of authority. So, for example, if we, uh, I mean, on a separate issue, on the question of suicide bombing, Qaradawi reserves the space for the Muslim scholar, for the Muslim jurist to determine when and where is the resort to suicide bombing legitimate by asserting, by utilizing the tool of maslaha. And the tool of maslaha becomes a tool to also grant the jurist that kind of authority of, uh, of interpretation. On the other end of the spectrum, we see militants who are not, I mean, who I argue are not again, who have not escaped the predicament and the dilemma of the modern nation state and how to deal with their place in the modern nation state. Uh, with Al-Qaeda, we see some expansion, extensive expansion of some of the categories relating to targeting, for example, and we see the same selectivity. So for example, when it comes to, ta to targeting, we see an expansion of indiscriminate targeting beyond the regime of Tatarus and beyond what, it, what is envisioned by scholars under the regime of uh, Tatarus. And we also see attempts to connect what is not, not necessarily connectable. For example, Zawahri argues that weapons of mass destruction are attempting to um, uh, own or utilize weapons of mass destruction can be compared to indiscriminate targeting by tools such as hurling machines and so on. Disregarding the fact that classical jurists have actually acknowledged some level of discrimination in those weapons by giving direction to the Muslim army to, uh, to attempt to avoid harm that is likely to be inflicted in those situations. As, uh, hardly imaginable in a situation where you resort to weapons of mass destruction who are by their nature indiscriminate in a much more expansive fashion than um, those weapons. And the weakest point or the weakest link that we see in uh, Al-Zawahri's Al uh, jurisprudence is again, in a way, the utilization of the logic of the modern nation state to argue for the denial of the regime of Amin. So the regime of Amin uh, is a regime that is arguably a very individualized system under classical Islamic jurisprudence. Anyone could, could grant Amin, not just the state, not just the, the, the caliph could grant Amin, anyone could. Of course, the caliph could revoke that Amin, uh, but, but it's, a, it's a much more fluid system than we see in the modern nation state, but he utilizes the authority of the modern nation state and the logic of the modern nation state to, to deny the possibility of individual amen, thereby again employing the same methods of selectivity that we see uh, associated with um, mainstream scholars. On the other end of the spectrum, we see a new animal, which is the Islamic State and its approach to Islamic jurisprudence. Arguably, I mean, even the rigor of analysis is is much weaker in comparison to Al-Zawahri's work, for example. The, the resort to, the, to jurisprudence is much weaker, but we see an expansion, an extensive expansion of the notion of apostasy to include Muslims who live under so-called apostate regimes by relying on scholars such as Ibn Hazm and Ibn Taymiyyah, despite the fact that, we, that those same scholars have in some instances acknowledged that 
Muslims who live under regimes whose adherence to Islamic law may be seen as subjects, such as um, Egyptians in the case of Ibn Hazm, or the Mardin, the very famous Mardin fatwa issued by Ibn Taymiyyah, that lead us to a very different conclusion, thereby collapsing all categories and denying their opposition of any tool of challenge to Islamic law. And on the other hand, we also see the same resort to the denial of protections of the Shia by expanding the interpretations of apostasy of the Shia, but most importantly, by denying the applicability of regimes that are so entrenched in Islamic law, and namely the regime of Jizya. So we see the assertion that Christians in, a, in Egypt may be targeted simply because they live under a regime that is not Islamic, which is very odd because it goes against the rationale of Amen, at least not even Jizya or Dhimmi uh, status because they have been granted a semblance of a safety pact. And more importantly, because at the end of the day with the classical doctrine, Dhimma status is offered. And uh, once it's offered, it, there are regulations for how you revoke it and there are regulations for how they provide for it. And that is completely silenced in the debate that we see associated with ISIS. I'm going to come back to that perhaps in the discussion, I don't want to take more time, but the, the general gist of that analysis is that despite whether or not we're dealing with groups who deny the existence of the modern nation state or entities that are entrenched within the modern nation state, there's no escaping it. There is no escaping its impact on how we understand Islamic laws of war today and how that understanding is so entrenched in our logic of how to deal with militancy. Thank you so much, Nasreen. Like, this is uh, an incredibly impressive piece of 20 minutes. I mean, there's so much packed into this and you've brought so many fascinating voices into the conversation and so much analytical nuance to uh, reflecting on how the modern nation state has an impact on this, the way in which scholars of uh, ostensibly completely different stripes are actually coming uh, to Islamic law or to the classical tradition in similar ways because of the, what modernity has wrought. I'm sure this will elicit a lot of discussion on the part of um, attendees and please feel free to type in your questions at this stage. If you would like to raise your hand, we're going to take the questions after Murad's session. But right now I'm going to switch over to Murad Idris. Uh, Murad Idris is a, an associate professor of political science at the University of Michigan with his doctoral degree from the University of Pennsylvania. And he has a wide range of interests uh, in political theory and the history of political thought, including in war and peace, critical theory, conceptual history, anti-colonial and post-colonial thought political theology, internet, like you basically are interested in everything pertaining to sort of Islamic politics. And, and I think this is reflected, of course, in your writing as well. Um, so your book, uh, again, relatively recent book came out in 2019, was entitled War for Peace, Genealogies of a Violent Ideal in Western and Islamic Thought. And you have other work that you're working on right now. I think you have a, another book planned, which currently is tentatively titled Out of History, Genealogies and Language, Time and Violence. So I, I look forward to that as well. But uh, you'll be talking about theorizing colonialism, capitalism and violence in an Islamist key. So let me hand it over to you for the next 20 minutes. Thank you. Great. Uh, thank you, Faisal. Thank you, uh, Sama, uh, for the uh, invitation. I'm excited to be here sharing a mix of recent and new work with you, and I'm excited to be in conversation with you all. 
Uh, I'll be focusing on excavating some uh, unusual themes from Sayyid Qutb's writings. Sayyid Qutb is known as the main theorist of 20th century Islamism, and he's often considered to have been the intellectual backbone of Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood in the 1950s. Today, he's mostly read for his uh, uh, prison writings, which are considered uh, far more uh, radical. I'll refer to some lesser known works from the early 1950s, including articles published in uh, the journals uh, Dawa and uh, Risala, his neglected peace plan for the formation of an Islamic federation, and his diagnoses of capitalism, colonialism, orientalism, and race as interlocking in a formation of violence. Uh, I'll also work in some remarks about the journal Dawa. Uh, I'm currently trying to work through a few thousand pages of the journal, which was published over the course of uh, four years. And this is all part of a project on theorizing violence, colonialism, and capitalism by Islamists in the 1950s. So uh, I'm promising a lot. So let's uh, jump right in. I'll frame my comments uh, with four premises. First premise, and this should not be uh, controversial, Muslims and Islamists are theorists of violence. And I mean this in two ways. On the one hand, Islamists aren't simply you know, occasional agents of violence, they theorize their own violence. And to treat this as theory rather than, for example, mere propaganda is to understand, is to understand it as an intervention into uh, an ongoing set of debates, ideas, and practices. On the other hand, Islamists also theorize the already pre-existing and prevalent structures of violence. And certainly in the 1950s, uh, they understood these two to be intimately linked, though I'm focusing uh, today on their analyses of uh, the latter, the pre-existing structures of violence, their genealogies, their idioms, and their connections. Second, Qutb's theorizations of violence have numerous underappreciated resonances and linkages across the history of political thought including in the writings of Kant, Du Bois, Fanon, Edward Said, and others. These linkages are, I believe, entirely incidental, but drawing attention to them can help us diagnose the politics of contemporary disciplinary formations or why we read certain thinkers in certain ways alongside some thinkers and not others for some themes, but not others. Third, recovering this cross-section of Islamist thought on violence brings into view theorizations of how violence is linked with colonialism, capitalism, and Orientalism. So it moves us away from constructions of Islamic thought in terms of fanaticism and uh, ideology, and it forces us to reckon with a different radical thread that is palpable in these archives one that treats fanaticism actually as a colonial discourse and then diagnoses its inner workings. It helps us de-exceptionalize the thematics that are assigned to particular bodies of knowledge. So it's against what we might call the contemporary choreography of critique. Finally, in tension with much of what I've uh, said, uh, situating Qutb within a broader sphere of Islamist intellectual production in the 1950s shows an entire discursive structure, many writers, many publications that were reflecting precisely on these very terms. Although theorists and uh, historians of Islamism tend to focus on individual thinkers and their books, and I include myself in this, looking at the social, political, and institutional life of journals moves us away towards a different and, I think, exciting model of doing theory. So let me offer a few, example, uh, a few examples of these premises, juxtapositions, and uh, provocations. First, federation, Qutb and Kant. 
and this one will be brief. One of the chapters of uh, my book, which uh, Osama mentioned, uh, War for Peace, uh, I read Qutb in relation to Kant, specifically how each constructs a federation that begins with domestic legal reform, then a federation of uh, these states banding together, and then how they uh, police the globe uh, against enemies of peace. Instead of Kant's idea of colonial powers policing each other and their former colonies, Qutb's solution is for the colonized Muslims to police the colonizer and the entire globe. Uh, the only thing I'll add here uh, is about how Qutb and Kant critically diagnose how appeals to peace have operated as covers for violence. And then, unironically, each offers a three-part peace plan that, in the name of peace, authorizes a particular form of exceptional violence. So these formations reflect and re-entrench hierarchies within humanity. Uh, I'll leave Kant here for now. We can pick him up later if there's interest. Uh, two, uh, War and Empire, or uh, Qutb uh, with Du Bois. In his book on universal peace, uh, Qutb observes that uh, the American intervention in Korea reveals the violent colonial truth of a self-styled democratic bloc. Interestingly, although the uh, political theorists today don't really say much about the Korean War, uh, Du Bois too situated this war as putting on full display an American war industry. And in fact, both Qutb and Du Bois, they draw attention to the institutions of colonial peace and how they enable particular kinds of war, ones that oftentimes don't go by the name of war. For both the prevailing colonial capitalist and racialized peace facilitates war, violence, and subjugation across the globe. And uh, both imagined an anti-colonial federation. Otto wrote, the war drums are beating. There it is, a prospect knocking on the ears of the wretched of humanity. I heard it before in America, even before the onset of the Korean War. Everyone who's lived in America during the last two years clearly has understood that America will wage war. And uh, he goes on, anyone who has followed American journalism and its other media apparatus through radio, cinema, universities, colleges, clearly understood that this is a nation preparing to wage war, and it is packing public opinion with this idea. And the war is coming, he says, because the heads of American capital are in dire need of a new war. Uh, they generally have engaged in massacres, uh, <clears throat> no matter how much their propaganda waves around the names of ethical principles and humanitarian goals. And his primary examples are uh, Korea and uh, Palestine, sort of exemplifying colonial hypocrisy. Uh, his 1953 essay, Principles of the Free World, uh, it too observes that the name the free world uh, is a cover for colonialism. Uh, in uh, Tunis, uh, Marrakesh, Kenya, Vietnam, the free world rips apart the skin of freedom and strangles free people everywhere. So this view of colonial discourse, rhetoric, and misrepresentation as uh, tactics across the globe, it produces a geography in which uh, North Africa and the Near East, Eastern Europe and East Asia, Africa and Southeast Asia are all bound together, sharing the same fate and the same uh, problems. Whereas uh, attention to his uh, federation would trace a geography that maps onto uh, the Muslim world, whereby it polices the globe against injustice. This diagnostic geography puts Muslims and non-Muslims into the same colonial present. And attention to either, I think, helps us to unsilo Islamism, to locate theorizations of colonialism and anti-colonialism as internal to and as overlapping with Islamist thought. 
three, capitalism, consciousness, or Fanon with Khotob. Khotob uh, theorizes capitalism. Uh, I was uh, surprised uh, to learn this. Uh, we already saw him linking capitalism to war, but he also links it to the colonial management of culture and consciousness. And on top of all that, he uses the language of critical political economy to make a number of his arguments. So oftentimes these kinds of uh, borrowings are read in terms of the sneaky Islamists trying to co-opt the language of his opponents. And uh, maybe, uh, I think they can also be uh, read generatively as reflecting the success of uh, Marxism in educating uh, its uh, uh, potential uh, opponents. Uh, and although I'm not going to make uh, uh, much reference to it uh, today, there's an entire issue in a dawah that is an analysis of capitalism, class, and property, and it draws heavily on Marxist uh, idioms. Uh, so there are both Fanonian uh, and Marxist resonances uh, here. In uh, Qutb's book, The Battle of Islam uh, and uh, Capitalism, uh, he explains that uh, the English uh, always knew that their armies would have to leave Egypt someday. And so they ensured Egypt's dependence on them. Uh, he offers a version of a dependency theory, asserting that one of the central pillars of colonial control is to make the colony economically dependent on the metropole. So he says the English established uh, colonialism's institutional supports in the economic field by occupying Egyptian markets and by attempting to close off other international markets to Egyptian products. Uh, and all this, uh, uh, he says, uh, however, uh, would not be enough for colonialism to persist if not for the colonization of consciousness and intellect, which co uh, colonialism has attended to over the last century. The white English have vacated governmental offices in order for the dark English to take their place, whose consciousness and intellect are colonized, assembled according to colonialism and its objectives. So having shaped the Ministry of Education, he says, the white English can now be confident that the dark English will continue their mission. Uh, colonialism, in other words, conscripts those who exalt freedom and culture uh, and those who oversee education in its battles against Islam, whether they realize it or not. They produce curricula on Islamic studies that simply catalog military assaults, wars, incidents, events. And he says the upshot is that Islam was a large military battle and that it had never been an intellectual, social, or humanitarian battle as well. The narration of Islam as a sequence of violence and events uh, is one strand of uh, Orientalism, which is something I'll speak to in a few minutes. Uh, Qutb does not name it, and he doesn't connect it with uh, the rest of his observations, but he does claim that colonial education culminates in colonialism without colonists. So for the colonization of consciousness and intellect to reach its high point, even after the departure of the occupation. Uh, so all non-white peoples, uh, he says, uh, are taught to measure themselves in relation to the white man and his history, to denigrate their own histories. Uh, people in America talk about the white man as though they are talking about a half god and people of color like Egyptians and Arabs generally as though they are describing a half human. Uh, Qutb's framing of uh, historical narratives and world politics in terms of race consciousness and a racial war uh, took place immediately after his visit to the United States. And the key point here is that Qutb was interested in colonial consciousness, especially cultural and educational institutions, newspapers, books, histories, 
all of which uh, uh, narrated the glories of France, Britain, and America, and degraded and humiliated others, he said. So this includes American empire, uh, which he mocked as trying to create an Americanized uh, Islam, its own brand uh, of Islam, uh, one that was depoliticized and that marked all other forms of Islam as dangerous and uh, illegitimate. And this is why Qutb calls for destroying uh, the colonialism in our consciousness towards a new pedagogy. With this pedagogy, all people, particularly new generations, should be educated about colonialisms, injustices, and the injustices committed by the white man. Whereas Qutb gives much of this, much of this account in an article titled, Our Number One Enemy, The White Man. Uh, interestingly, uh, this is the lesson that the front page of Dawa gave on March 30th, 1951, in an article by the editor titled, Colonialism is Our Number One Enemy. And that article said that colonialism operates in the same exact way as uh, disbelief, uh, no matter who is colonizing who. It divides people and it divides their consciousness. If Muslims wish for freedom, the article said, then they have to resist colonialism. And they can do this by revealing all of its actions and all of its misdeeds. Then it ends uh, optimistically, after that we shall win. Back to uh, Qutb and uh, capitalism. In addition to uh, dependency, Qutb refers to the alliance between dictatorship and the despotism or autocracy of capital. So he says, colonialism is always concerned that the masses should not rule themselves because it then becomes difficult to subdue them. Thus, there must be a governing dictatorial class that possesses autocratic authority and great wealth. This class is the one with which colonialism can have dealings. This is because first, its numbers are few, and second, it depends on colonialism to persist and needs its support in the face of the masses. This class is in charge of subduing the masses and governing them. Colonialism disappears from view behind it. Uh, Qutb's terminology and his uh, uh, class analysis have their provenance in the writings of Marx and Lenin. Uh, the terms appear with neither citation nor explanation, but at the very least, they show us the adaptation of the critique of capitalism into an Islamist key. Four, Orientalism, or Qutb before Said. The two penultimate chapters of the battle of Islam and capitalism form an arc. Uh, the first one is uh, doubts about the rule of Islam, and it enumerates various caricatures uh, of Islam, uh, whereas the second is uh, uh, enmities towards the rule of Islam, and it describes different enemies, different antagonisms. The six doubts are Islam's primitivism, the authority of sheikhs, tyranny, the vagueness of scripture, harems, and the oppression of minorities. Qutb's selection is important uh, today because these six reflect the definition of Islam as the antithesis of modernity, liberalism, freedom, and civilization. So the idea that Islam tries to return to the seventh century to tents in the desert uh, casts it not simply as lagging, not simply as obsolete, but as a destructive refusal of modernity. Uh, and he says, you know, people imagine Islamic governance to mean uh, tents in the desert, Bedouins on camels, Arabs in caves, in which there would be, and here he really uh, seems to be channeling uh, Thomas Hobbes, who I'm pretty sure he uh, never read. Uh, uh, there would be no building, no civilization, no sciences, and no arts, uh, and no poetry. Uh, he criticizes these doubts uh, as uh, generalizations, misrepresentations, projections, 
ones that limit Islam's uh, temporalization and merely reflect the kinds of negative models that the capitalist and communist blocs have permitted to appear in the world in order to repel people from a more critical view. The repertoire of doubts is also important because uh, it inserts uh, Qutb through his responses into the lineage of critiques of Orientalism. The repertoire of tropes, after all, has an Orientalist uh, uh, pedigree. And uh, as he says, they serve Orientalist discourses and uh, interests. So his critique here is about how representations and stereotypes masquerade as knowledge. And he then describes six enemies of Islam. These are the crusaders, colonists, uh, exploiters, professional men of uh, religion, uh, the immoral, and uh, uh, communists. Uh, some of these enemies rely on Orientalism. So as it turns out, the crusaders supply the spirit of the colonizers, and the exploiters and men of religion rely on the colonizers' understanding of Islam. So the colonizer and the Orientalist are tightly linked, so much so that Qutb says, the notion of Orientalist objectivity or neutrality functions as a mask. It justifies colonialism and it aims to transform the colonized population's consciousness so that they internalize its standards. Its uh, comprehensive studies, he says, aim to neutralize the seeds of resistance. So he writes, Orientalism was established in order to aid colonialism from a scientific point of view, in order to extend its roots into the intellectual soil. But we here, we worship Orientalists simple-mindedly. If it occurs to you to doubt the innocence of these saints, then you're uncultured, you're a fanatic who brings in religion at every opportunity. Also uh, recall my earlier uh, point about which histories are narrated and uh, how. So for Qutb, this is all ideologically bound up with Orientalist and racial colonial structures. Let me end by highlighting a couple of things. First, Qutb's discussions of education, curricula, doubts, and consciousness refer to the production of knowledge about Islam. So in an untimely moment, Qutb, 30 years before Said's Orientalism, 12 years before uh, Anwar uh, Abdel Malik's Orientalism in crisis, uh, would be theorizing Orientalism, its complicity, its complicity in the colonial project and the fantasies that it sets into motion and rationalizes for European authors and policymakers, as well as for colonized Muslim intellectuals. This is not to simply say that the anti-colonial critique of Orientalism predates Said and that various Arab and non-Arab intellectuals should be inserted into its history, which is of course true. It is, however, and maybe somewhat irreverently, irreverently uh, to put uh, Qutb's writings on knowledge production as internal to the genealogy of theorizing Orientalism. So it's to trace a question around which thinkers and texts have permission to speak about which topics, or to borrow a different phrase of Edward Said's, which have the permission to narrate a critique of Orientalism, capitalism, and their structures, or to even be in a genealogy of critique. It's to ask who's authorized to, to theorize about what kinds of topics, or what I earlier referred to as the choreography of critique. Second, Qutb's discussions contain a composite of analytics, right, from uh, colonialism's representations and denials of violence across the globe, to structures of dispossession and a class analysis derived from Marxism, to the political theology that underlies secularized anti-Islamic uh, uh, colonialism and knowledges, all in these overlapping frames. 
The composite analytics draw in multiple regions across the colonized world into the same fate, one enabled by complementary structures of dispossession. Third, uh, although I've only gestured to them, uh, situating Qutb in relation to various journals like Adawa can help us shift where we locate theory, where we locate theorizations of violence, and how we locate Islamist thought in relation to it. It is to de-exceptionalize the Muslim thinker twice, in terms of which scripts, themes, and connections can come into view, and in terms of the intellectual's embeddedness in a broader network of discourse. Let me give you one last uh, example. In Dawa in uh, March 1951, Qutb uh, calls French barbarism the greatest threat to the Muslim world. And this, he says, is the same France that buckled its knees when Hitler sneezed. The juxtaposition interrupts the European discourses of the barbarism of Nazism and the barbarism of the colonized to draw out the barbarism of the European colonizer. So he says, uh, France continues to send its tanks, its artillery, and its fighter jets against uh, Marrakesh. He then offers an inventory of French atrocities with dates and places, 1789 Egypt, 1925 and 1941 Damascus, 1812, 1941, 1944, 1951 Marrakesh, 1830, 1945 Algeria, 41 villages decimated, and he lists uh, other massacres across North Africa with the same uh, dynamics, uh, uh, saying that the same dynamics also describe British attacks on Egypt and Italian attacks on uh, present-day uh, Libya. He uh, contrasts these atrocities with love for France, which he calls, uh, uh, <clears throat> using religious terminology, worship, ibadah, and its admirers are uh, France's slaves, abid, and what they do is glorifying yusabbihun, the institutional mechanisms that enable this worship are French institutes in Egypt. These are sites of indoctrination or re-education, ones that mask barbarism and instill awe. And this is why France, he says, opposes having an Egyptian institute in uh, Tangier. This would foster an anti-colonial orientation, one facilitated by the feeling of a shared Muslim heritage, which in turn facilitates Muslim unity. So this mixing, of theological, geopolitical, and institutional registers marks a violence that works through the production of a cultural institutional apparatus. It stages the problem of anti-colonial consciousness and colonial violence into a direct confrontation of pedagogy. Thank you, and uh, I look forward to our conversation. Thank you very much, Murad. I'm really, I think these papers work wonderfully with each other, and both of them are in their own ways, uh, you know, wonderfully uh, evocative. While we're waiting for people in the audience to write in their questions or raise their hands, I know Osama also has uh, some. I, let me begin with a couple of my own, if I may. Nisreen, uh, as you were speaking, I just thought how, how well the responses of Muslim authorities that you describe parallel the responses of many Western governments facing the same, if you will, threat. And what struck me in particular is the focus initially when you were speaking about Al-Qaeda on the law dealing with highwaymen and banditry as opposed to rebellion. And of course, this is it reminded me so much of the resort to piracy in the European uh, legal order and therefore the ex exceptionalization of the militant. 
outside uh, everything that is regular and outside rights uh, altogether. That's one thing. And the other thing, of course, has to do with the anxiety over authority or the reassertion of authority, which you also find perhaps not so much vis-a-vis uh, -vis Al Qaeda's or ISIS's form of militancy, but more generally in contemporary discussions of law and legality in North America and Western Europe, where it's precisely the nature of legitimate authority and where it is to be located that is uh, in question. So these are not the same things, or one of them might be the same and not the other, but I just wondered if you might have any words on how you think the two go together structurally beyond the specific political and intellectual context that your talk addressed. Thank you, Faisal. Uh, those are very interesting um, questions. On the first point, of course, exceptionalism is, is the name of the game when it comes to law. It's always easier to argue for an exception than it is to reformulate the rule. And as a matter of fact, the, the dealing with Al-Qaeda is, uh, is prominent in the assertion of a very well-known exception in international humanitarian law, which is the category of the unlawful combatant and the claims about unlawful combatancy that are advocated by the United States, arguing that Al-Qaeda fighters are neither um, combatants who deserve prisoners of war status, uh, nor, nor are they civilians, and therefore they belong to a category that enjoy, enjoys neither of the privileges that we see associated with either. So that is in no way unique to legal argumentation. And as a matter of fact, also, I mean, one interesting thing that you mentioned when it comes to going in tandem with Western government's arguments is that to some extent, as a matter of fact, going in tandem with those arguments and I mean, ironically, so there's, I mean, there's a fixation on proving that Islamic law is as humane as international humanitarian law is. This is very clear, but in doing that, there's very little disregard to how international humanitarian law channels and legitimates violence in, in, in its own uh, ways, as we, and, and as we've seen in critical scholarship examining international humanitarian law extensively. But you also suppress areas, even if we, if we take the assumption that there is a possibility that you limit violence and you re regulate violence, it suppresses your claim to an even more protective regime that exists within the Islamic legal tradition, which is the regime of Baghdad, which offers protections that definitely surpass international humanitarian laws, protections of non-international armed conflicts. Of course, there are so many, I mean, I don't want to be reproducing the, the functionalist comparison between international humanitarian law and Islamic law, because it's a functionalist comparison that I critique and that I believe is has an assumption of a set of values embedded in it, but you have here a regime that allows you to offer more protections, but that it's completely suppressed, partly because it does not fit within the current order of governance, and partly because it doesn't really have a resonance in international humanitarian law. And this is related to another argument that I make somewhere else about how to compare the disciplines. So generally speaking, the comparison of the disciplines now is done through a functionist lens. And the assumption of values is taken and borrowed from the international humanitarian law tradition. Whereas there is potentially an alternative way of looking at the disciplines whereby they actually guide us towards the blind spots 
that we see in each system. So rather than espousing an understanding of how law should deal with violence, you look at how those two disciplines regulate differently. As a matter of fact, in this particular instance, using the regime of rebellion can guide us to the what Berman refers to as the statist and the governmentalist bias in international humanitarian law and provide the space for an alternative understanding of how we deal with violence. Of course, there are some issues that you can see also and build on in looking at Islamic law, but there's no side to that end of the analysis of international humanitarian law. But at the end of the day, coming back to your point, yes, exceptionalism is, I mean, that's the bread and butter of lawyers to, to a great extent and, and, and has been often argued by many critical works. It's actually what tells us about law much more than what the, what the rule tells us about law. Can you remind me of the second point? The second had to do with the, you know, what you say about the anxiety over authority and reasserting authority in a, as it were, if you will, anti-democratic way. So, you know, they're forced on the back foot the yeah. figures that you're talking about, because they have to reclaim authority from its fragmentation and dispersal. And that also, of course, seems to be a common trope in contemporary Western European and North American understandings of the vulnerability of, of expert expertise and authority. Yes, I mean, of course, we, we see that everywhere and we see it with it. I mean, we see it in different contexts, but I do believe that there are particular features that makes the situation difficult for Muslim jurists. First of all, this is a tradition that has thrived on diversity, that has thrived on multiplicity. And because it has thrived on diversity and multiplicity, it has always appreciated distance from the political authority. It has always perceived of the, the distance from the political authority as a litmus test for legitimacy. So for a Muslim jurist in the present political order, it's very difficult to navigate that terrain because on the one hand, you want to assert your legitimacy, but that is difficult to do considering, if, for example, we look at the case of Egypt, legal measures that have developed over the years to bring institutions under the authority of, of the modern state. So the more they're associated with the state, the more that erodes their legitimacy and the more that opens up the space for other voices that come and undercut them. I don't want to argue that there's no place for authority in Islamic law, because that would be a very erroneous reading of Islamic law. Yes, it, it's a diverse tradition, but it's a tradition that has also had its ways of vetting and offering respect and weight for authority. So in a way, that concern that we see voiced by many Azhari scholars uh, and perhaps on also independent scholars is a legitimate concern. But it's a concern that is very difficult for them to achieve, considering the space that they're trying to carve out. For example, Ahmed al-Tayyib had continued to assert that he cannot offer a position that deems ISIS apostates. For a very legitimate and sound reason, whether in terms of expedience or in terms of jurisprudence, also, because at the very basic level, in terms of expedience, I cannot criticize them for engaging in takfir, and then I engage in takfir myself. I'm disarming myself of that very important tool. But it come under very heavy criticism from media that is associated with political actors 
for failing to do that. So there's always a pressure to pull you back in again. And uh, in a way that is the, that is probably part of the legitimacy crisis. When you see, uh, I mean, Azhari scholars uh, writing on socialism as the way of Islam and then moving away towards writing towards on how free market is the spirit of Islam and then writings on, on the taboo issues, I mean, uh, political rebellions and so on and so forth in a particular line, that extensively creates the space for you to lose that navigating power. Well, thanks. That's really absolutely fascinating. And, you know, I'm sure we could speak about it at length and I'm sure we'll return to this. I have one question for Murad and then I will turn to you, Osama, and ask those in our audience to raise their hands or write in their questions. So Murad, you know, as you were speaking, I thought you have, in a way, two trajectories. And one, of course, is the one that has to do with colonialism and Orientalism in which you could arguably put Said Qutb in a genealogy ending in today's decolonial, decolonial movement, let's say. And I completely understand that. But the other one I'm more interested in, which is the figure of Said Qutb and perhaps other Islamists as standing for expressing a critique of the post-colonial state itself. So now obviously he, puts that within a context in which colonialism or neo-colonialism is crucial. And he was also operating in a Cold War context where the ideological state is some kind of given, let's say, or necessity to think about. But if we were to set those factors aside for the moment, you know, what strikes me as being wonderfully original, not only about him, but about other Islamists in this period, Maududi, of course, comes to mind immediately, is that they represent well before, just as the case, you were making the case with you know, uh, uh, Orientalism avant lettre, you know, here you have, if you will, the, the move against the post-colonial state before its time almost. And if we strip it of its, its various kind of shroudings, you see that being a, as being some extraordinarily productive moment because it escapes the usual conventional genealogies in which we set Islamism. And I wonder if you might have something to say on that particular uh, trajectory of your talk. Yes, that actually illuminates it in a really uh, generative and uh, helpful way. So uh, thank you. Yes, I think that I too, I think I'm much more interested in that second uh, trajectory. The, the first is sort of a aha kind of uh, replacement or a displacement, whereas uh, the second really is about shifting the stakes of how we read these thinkers and why we read them. And you're entirely, I think, right, that uh, Maududi would be another person to uh, read precisely uh, in this fashion. And uh, the thing that I find really fascinating about how in these articles, rather than in the, the later books, in these articles and in these uh, shorter books, let's say. Um, what I find really fascinating about his analysis is how it really hones in on particular institutions. And in the process of honing in on like this ministry or uh, uh, these cultural centers or uh, this particular way of understanding the treasury, uh, there's almost uh, a unmasking perhaps of the state 
there's almost so they uh, I'm, I'm thinking here of uh, the brilliant article by uh, timothy mitchell in what was it 1991 or 1990 uh the state effect that, that basically asks us to look at the institutions at uh, the uh, overall configuration of civil society rather than to take the state as something that is given or something that is pre-existing and that's the discourse that Qutb and all of these other islamists are operating with from the get-go right there's something really fascinating about what he does in on the one hand naming particular institutions rather than uh, the state and uh, on the other hand always locating those institutions as sites of uh, the uh, both domestic but also global uh, battles uh, that is help us think about them as nodes or perhaps as vectors within a larger uh, kind of uh, view uh, so what I find quite fascinating is how uh, he seems to maybe inadvertently I don't really know zoom in zoom out zoom in, zoom out, and give us these other views that make clear that what is at stake are institutions, uh, that the state itself is always composed of uh, questions of institutions, of pedagogy, of uh, uh, relations within the state, and of uh, relations between what these institutions uh, enable regionally, locally, uh, globally. And I think thinking about him as a historical institutionalist uh, is uh, that perhaps the way to go, uh, really. Thanks very much. I mean, it, obviously, the critique of nationalism becomes part of that, and and, it, and the critique that's neither a liberal critique of the post-colonial state, Cold War liberal critique, nor, of course, a Marxist critique of the nations of the post-colonial state as a, as a kind of further step in the constitution of a colonial bourgeoisie. Uh, so, yeah, it opens up all kinds of questions. But Usama, can I turn to you? Sure. I mean, I, I've just been fascinated by the, the preceding discussion for both of you, and I've had conversations with Humar Iqtidar, I'm sure you've been uh, sort of part of this festival as well. I mean, the idea of looking at someone like Maududi as this opportunity to reassess Western sort of political theory. And what you're doing is precisely the same thing. Of course, the genealogy from Maududi to Qutub is also very interesting. Um, and that's something I've uh, personally been interested in. But uh, I'm not trained quite so systematically uh, within the sort of Western international relations theory literature, but I think that, you know, these people represent an interesting uh, coalescing of ideas. Uh, I mean, uh, Murad, you're talking about Islamism more generally as well, not just looking at Qutb, to a, a type of international relations theory that needs to be more thickly described, more thoroughly articulated. And I look forward to uh, reading your work more closely, uh, as I also hope to read their original ideas in the, in the Arabic, uh, or in the case of Mududi and Urdu in some instances. Um, to be able to uh, explore that in greater detail. I actually had a question uh, that would take me back to Nasreen uh, a bit, and um, it sort of perhaps is framed, uh, you know, you, you, you spoke about the way in which um, Muslim scholars were trying to sort of ameliorate the uh, impression that uh, the Sharia somehow maybe has certain harmful effects, and the comparator, of course, is uh, sort of international law as a normative standard against which we measure. And I think, you know, you're doing something similar in a, in a sense to what we were just discussing with Murad. You're trying to potentially displace that authority that is granted to the standard narrative of international law and say, well, why does that need to be the sort of reference point? And for me, what's really striking in, in some of the story that you said is this was at the same time that these scholars are trying to highlight, well, 
you know, Islamic law is as humane as the international sort of humanitarian law or whatever is the major reference point. That is the time when, you know, uh, enemy combatants or sort of non, I forget, unlawful combatants, uh, they coined that idea as being generated. That is the same time that, you know, um, I forget the name, John Yu perhaps is writing the torture memos for the Bush administration. And I wonder how those two sort of visions of the role of law, why are they heading in such divergent pathways? You know, some of that answer might be somewhat obvious, but I'd love to hear your insights there specifically. Why is it that Muslim scholars are, you know, in this, on the back foot trying to say, actually, uh, this tradition isn't as bad as you think. And these chaps over here are trying to say, okay, what can we, th this, this tradition needs to be uh, instrumentalized to allow for the most, what in the popular imagination is really heinous behavior. So, you know, what can we do about that? And, and what motivates those very different trajectories? And, and just thinking about your comments on that. Thank you. Thank you, Osama. That's a, that's a very interesting question. I'd like just to direct you to a recent article uh, written by Lina Salema on that issue. And she argues that Bush's arguments about the unlawful combatant category can be very much compared to Al-Qaeda's arguments about uh, who may be uh, targeted. So I, mean, I do think, I mean, there are some legal nuances that I might uh, agree or disagree with here and there, but the idea is that we cannot necessarily read the Bush administration as reflective the, of the international legal uh, tradition as a whole. At the end of the day, the Bush administration's position was heavily criticized by different UN human rights organizations, different groups, and by the entity that is often seen as the guardian of international humanitarian law, the International Committee of the Red Cross. So in a way, while the Bush administration's position might be argued to be an aberration, I don't think, I don't personally think it's an aberration because there is the space in the system that allows for such arguments to be made. Um, the benchmark that is being used here is the benchmark of the model modern international humanitarian as exemplified by international institutions and international humanitarian uh, organizations. And sometimes that is a coincidence by an attempt to appeal to that. I mean, arguably, clearly in the very early works, it's an appeal to the prominence of international law and the idea of the prominence of international law that comes after the Second World War. So it's an attempt to appeal to that discourse. But also there are more deliberate attempts to reconcile that we, that we see in the present. The International Committee of the Red Cross contacts and gets in touch with Muslim scholars to write articles that portray, that emulate uh, international humanitarian law. For example, uh, one scholar that I've mentioned and that I've looked at extensively, Wahb al-Zuhayli, he has written an article for the International Review of the Red Cross on uh, Islamic laws of war. So that's not a coincidence. The, the Red Cross has an Islamic law expert. Now, uh, I, I doubt that they have other experts from other legal uh, traditions and they conduct trainings on Islamic laws of war. So there is a deliberate agenda whether one agrees with it or not, to right. offer to offer that rec reconciliation. It's not always just an attempt to appease to a an assumption of um, a superior set of ideals. There's also consorted 
effort uh, that is going there. Uh, just a commentary on the, the Bush administration is, however, utilized by Muslim scholars to make an argument that's very similar to the argument that Lina uh, Salema makes. So I remember in an, inter in an interview with Ahmad al-Tayyib that I was conducting for my fieldwork, when asked about the practices of al-Qaeda, he explicitly said, not every action in the name of a particular legal order is reflective of that legal order. Look at how the United States has justified the invasion of Iraq. So he didn't choose the unlawful combatant argument, but he used the use of force argument and how the US is subverting international law. And that's, this is not indicative of international law. So it actually creates the space for critique somehow, but the ideals have become so entrenched that when you argue that for a different understanding of targeting, this is not a, just a different legal interpretation. This takes you into the terrain of barbarism and brutality. Right. And, right. and, and I think, I mean, if, if I may, I'm just going to link that to a, a broader question which I had for yourself, Murad, which was the discursive power that things like decolonial and postcolonial theorists are concerned about. They're trying to overturn these hegemonic Eurocentric ideals that presuppose the supremacy or the normativity of a particular sort of tradition of thinking and have in some respect underwritten, um, you know, the colonial traditions of the last few uh, centuries in, that, that just let me see and all of these sorts of things. Now, I mean, in a sense, what you're arguing is that uh, Sayyid Qutb is a a post-colonial or decolonial theorist ahead of the post-colonial decolonial theorists that we have, and which is a, a fascinating claim to put Edward Said next to Said Qutb, because I'm, I'm sure the latter, the former, neither of them would particularly like that. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, I mean, I just wanted to sort of ask, uh, in what ways does this disrupt um, the self-image of everyone involved, whether it's the Islamists or the decolonial theorists or the post-colonial theorists? To speak. Yeah, no, that's, I think that that's in a way part of what's at stake in that first move, right? Uh, uh, and, and, and the way that Faisal very helpfully uh, said there are sort of two trajectories. So that's, that, that's I think, what the, uh, the, the first trajectory uh, thinking with it, that's, that's sort of where it would uh, take us. And it's, I mean, there's a way that uh, I, I don't want to sort of paint with too broad of a uh, brush, but I've misplaced all my finer uh, brushes. Uh, there's there's a way that post-colonial theory broadly uh, simultaneously its practitioners, uh, and I guess I would include myself in that to some extent, its practitioners uh, are certainly not outside of a, a certain kind of post-enlightenment mode of uh, critique. And yet, at the same time, uh, there is there, there are quite a few distancing maneuvers that are fundamental to how post-colonialism, anti-colonialism, decolonial theory operate with respect to uh, movements that would be considered uh, like uh, what unsavory uh, in some way. And yet, the shared discursive space, the shared techniques, the shared insights, uh, and in some ways, the shared uh, implications. Are something that we can't just sweep under a rug, right? So from my perspective, what's precisely interesting about it is it takes this notion of critique and it takes this uh, worship of critique and uh, that says maybe we should be critical about this as the ideal that has come to dominate how we have this choreography. Because at the end of the day, I really do believe that 
one of the problems of this choreography is that it reproduces the very same kinds of silos, uh, the very same kinds of uh, geographies, the very same kinds of disciplines that uh, our own uh, disciplines have inherited, oftentimes quite unthinkingly. And what's interesting about someone uh, like uh, Qutb, uh, I'm, I'm guessing he probably wouldn't like being put in uh, uh, the uh, uh, company of uh, various uh, post-colonial and uh, decolonial uh, thinkers. He probably see them as uh, symptomatic uh, in, in many ways. But I think what's important about reading and recovering his modes of critique is uh, then the the alternatives that that opens up, the alternative modes of thinking. Uh, you mentioned uh, Hamida uh, Iqtidar's uh, work on uh, Maududi, and uh, uh, she has uh, this one article in particular in uh, uh, the Journal of Politics uh, that came out either last year or the year before that uh, is absolutely brilliant uh, on this front and really does try to push us to think in those terms. And maybe one thing that links uh, what I'm trying to do with Qutb and what uh, Nisreen is uh, also doing is poking at uh, the remainder, right? Poking at these uh, analytics or these categories uh, or even these choreographies that contemporary disciplines and uh, the contemporary state pushes against or pushes to the margins because uh, on the one hand, they're not useful, right? And on the other hand, they raised a, a certain kind of question about uh, the uh, legitimacy of the categories and discourses that define what is sayable by who and in what kinds of ways, to put it in the most uh, uh, general terms. But, it, but in that way, it would tell us that at the same time as we're using these categories of post-colonial and decolonial, we need to be really quite critical of the culturalized work that already goes into who they give center stage to and who they silence and why that's the case. Thank you very much. Um, uh, Faisal, I uh, have, as always, sort of plenty of questions to put to our esteemed uh, panelists, but I, I don't want to hog the discussion either. I have one for uh, Nisreen, and then maybe we can go back to you, Osama. So Nisreen, you know, when you were talking about, well, from the very beginning of your talk, actually, when you mentioned, so interestingly, the, if you will, cherry-picked or perhaps let us even say opportunistic or at least unsystematized mode of addressing some of these questions, I was put in mind of um, uh, the sort of uh, critique of this form of juridical knowledge by one of my early teachers, uh, Fazlur Rahman, who approached it from a completely modernist, he was a modernist, and so modernist viewpoint, where he sort of railed against, he was a wonderful man, by the way, I don't mean to criticize him, but you know, he railed against the unsystematized uh, and cherry-picked uh, you know, mode by which jurists had approached the textual corpus. Not that they were not following up argumentative lines, but they refused, for instance, in his view, to take the text of the Quran or the Hadith systematically. And of course, he understood that one reason they might have refused to do so was precisely to allow for the pluralism that you, Nasreen, then came back to in your response, I think, to Osama, uh, and, and to make impossible the hegemonization of this textual corpus. 
But as you were speaking, it struck me, yes, I completely get that. On the other hand, do you think that that form of legal or juridical pluralism, uh, the availability of different kinds of arguments, not entirely congruent with each other, sometimes even not with themselves, has reached its limits? Because after all, Al-Qaeda and to a larger extent, ISIS also use similar forms of whatever you want to call it, unsystematized or cherry-picked or, or whatever uh, legal reasoning, however weak it might be in comparison with that of the sort of, uh, of Azharis. So, you know, one wonders what uh, fate lies before this otherwise admirable tradition of legal pluralism. Thank you, Faisal. So this is, this is something that uh, I keep going back and forth on and I extensively reflect, reflect on. I do think that on the one hand, there is an issue with systematization, regardless of it being singular or, or plural. We don't really see a systemized theory that is advocated by a particular institution or jurist and saying, this is the theory that I promote or I'm trying to espouse. And those are the domains of it. We see with all the examples that have looked at, we see direct interpretation of the text sometimes, we see reliance on jurisprudence sometimes, and we see contextual assertions of maslaha and other times, with no clarification of when to use what and what you can actually rely on. This is not a question of intellectual impoverishment. I do think if one looks at uh, the situation that Al-Azhar is placed in, for example, if one were to focus on Al-Azhar, it's not a coincidence. So many scholars have argued that Al-Azhar has managed to carve out a space for itself as the authority on social issues. And the way it carves out that authority is by claiming a connection with the classical tradition, by relying on classical jurisprudence when it comes to matters such as personal status law and issues that are social rather than political taboo issues that they cannot really uh, keep a distance on. So from that perspective, the connection with the tradition is the assertion of their, of their legitimacy. The reliance on the jurisprudence is not just an intellectual commitment to that jurisprudence, but it's also part of the raison d'etre. But when it comes to other political issues where they have less of a freedom to carve out their own space, they have to, the whole theory starts to falter and, uh, and, and, and the position becomes untenable. But it's in a way very difficult for them to imagine or carve out an alternative space considering the role that they play in domestic politics now, where they are cornered into a way to assert legitimacy by connecting themselves with that tradition. And I don't want to dispel the importance of the tradition. I mean, uh, many, uh, as has been argued by many, the, the claim of direct reliance on the text has also been used as a pretext for justifying uh, militant thought and for eroding a, a millennia old tradition of learning in favor of, again, singular interpretations. So I'm not, I'm not sure if there is a way out for them, but they are left in a situation where they're in a dilemma, whereby we have two opposing parties, both using the same ammunition in very similar techniques to, to fight against each other, and there's no winning that game. Yes, thanks. It's really a, a 
extraordinary situation, isn't it? Uh, that and, and people who tend to look at the content rather than the form of these debates, they don't even twig <laughs> uh, to these strange parallelisms. Uh, Osama. Thank you. I mean, I, I actually did. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be a bit selfish and try and ask questions to both of you, actually. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure we won't really have a great deal of time. I mean, just picking up on Nasreen's point, um, I don't mind who, who goes first here, but some of what you were saying was reminiscent of Halak's um, sort of earlier claim. I mean, he doesn't make it in the same way about the death of the Sharia, but this um, sort of multiplicity basically being flattened in the modern period reflects a death of, the death of the Sharia. And I, you know, I, I've suggested in a review of some of his work that this is maybe a bit, you know, overdramatic, um, that, you know, we, we don't, the way in which the Sharia existed uh, over the past millennium and its variations, I mean, we're still, I think, trying to grapple with the extent to which there was variation in its, uh, in its practice, um, allows for much latitude, including the latitude of modernity. But I think this um, flattening of the diversity question, I, I wanted you to perhaps reflect a little on what Halak uh, is claiming and whether um, you know, this means somehow modern Muslims can't really be uh, adherents to a tradition uh, that is uh, consonant with the past or you know, as modern Muslims are engaging with these sort of global historical transformations, particularly, I think most importantly, the state and the fact that the state flattens uh, it, you know, uh, legal uniformity, I think, is part and parcel of the way in which we understand states. Is there any prospect, in a sense, do you think, that for that to return, that, that sort of diversity given? Uh, so that's kind of bunching two questions, one about Halak and one about the state. And very briefly for Murad, if, if it's possible, because I know we're going to have to end in about three minutes, actually. Uh, you know, the, the Thomas Babington Macaulay's Minute on uh, Education, I don't know if you're familiar with this, 1835, speech he gave uh, in um, sort of parliament but I just I'm reminded of a certain line and it just uh, in 1835 he was saying we must do uh, we must at present do our best to form a class who may be interpreters between us and the millions whom we govern i.e in India a class of persons Indian in blood and color but English in tastes and opinions and morals and in intellect and you know it just made me think uh, uh, that's what came to mind when you mentioned Qutb's comments about the sort of black Englishman, so to speak, or the dark Englishman. Anyway, I don't know who wants to take this first, but unfortunately, I've not let it. Left Murad, you go ahead. Thanks, uh, Nasirin, and I'll, I'll be uh, uh, very quick. Uh, uh, yeah, th th there's a super interesting genealogy, uh, I think, of uh, that uh, uh, set of tropes uh, with regards to uh, 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 Colonial gov uh, governance and uh, the, uh, the the like pretty blatant uh, notion of uh, a divided uh, self that is uh, thoroughly uh, racialized uh, in these terms. And if I, I just want to link it very quickly to uh, another thing that I think is uh, at stake in uh, many of these uh, conversations, uh, and I think this applies to both presentations today in terms of some of the uh, implications. And it's that. In a lot of the discourses surrounding, you know, pick what you want, whether it's critique or uh, modernity or uh, the Enlightenment or uh, whatever it is, the production of race, uh, the development of empire, the connections across different anti-colonial movements, with a couple of rare uh, exceptions, the uh, the Muslim drops out. Sometimes the Muslim, like you know, rears 
uh, his or her head and then like, you know, uh, recedes from view. And that is symptomatic of something much broader about how we understand many of these categories. And I think that that's one of the uh, things that uh, the kinds of genealogies that uh, you just pointed to, uh, Osama, help us uh, rethink, help us uh, rewrite, uh, help us uh, perhaps even uh, undo. Okay, I'll stop uh, there. And sorry, Nisidine, I left you with uh, one uh, or two minutes, I think. No, that's perfectly fine. So I do think that there are compelling aspects to Halle's argument with regards to the dynamics of how Sharia shifted in uh, the modern world. But I also do agree with the critiques of Halle's argument that assert that it disregards earlier presence of the political authority in the making of law uh, and how you had administrative assertions of law, even in the very classical assertions of Islamic law. I mean, a case in point is, if, if, for example, if you look at Halle's chapter on criminal law in his uh, textbook, Sharia Theory and Practice, you'll find that the Tazir section is rather brief and very, very slim. I mean, despite the fact that most of the time, most of the punishments were actually, were Taziri punishments. So on that account, I do find there are some issues there. And I do have issues with the claims that Sharia is one model and it and it has to fit that particular model and it cannot be reformulated or uh, reinterpreted but that doesn't necessarily mean that the so the question is not whether or not it can be reformulated differently the question is whether or not i mean in that particular context there is a space in the current political context to offer alternative reformulations that may very well be very different from earlier interpretations it varies over time, but yeah. in the current context, there's very slim chance for that. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Uh, this has really been sort of a fantastic sort of kaleidoscope of thinking about um, a topic which is not seen with favor, of course, uh, violence, so to speak, and for good reason uh, in general. But um, I, I cannot thank you both enough for really giving us a, a wonderful sort of insight into some of the sort of uh, cutting edge work that you're both involved in, uh, the theoretical reflections, the granular legal detail, uh, which you brought in as well. And I'm, uh, you know, I, I can sort of only wish that we had much more time to be able to sort of discuss these things. And I'm sure we will have plenty of opportunities to reconnect. Okay, so uh, if it's uh, all right, I'm just going to briefly mention um, what's coming up next uh, in, in our next session in a fort, fortnight's time. So. Um, thank you both to Nasreen Badawi and Murad Idris for really um, a, a spectacularly interesting and engaging session. In a couple more weeks' time, we'll also uh, ha- be having uh, um, a couple of scholars coming in, including uh, Murad, uh, you'll be interested to know, sorry, um, Nasreen, Lina Salema, uh, who's now based at Oxford um, for the next couple of years, and Mohammed Fadl, who are both being, naturally going to be talking about law. So I I look forward to our guests joining us then. And if you have the time, please do join as well. But uh, until then, uh, we look forward to seeing everyone in a couple of weeks' time.